0: listening to the Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense. Discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hey listeners, before we get into this week's episode, we wanted to give a shout out to one of our listeners, Mike, who has a super cool D&D or TTRPG, it's System Agnostic Supplement, for you guys to check out. And Mike reached out to us after we talked about pilgrimages and relics and like shaming relics and all of the kind of assorted D&D ideas that go along with that. And he did it. So you don't have to go making that stuff up. You can just check it out. It's a really cool little supplement. It is called Berg's and Bailiff's Trinity, the Poor Pilgrim's Almanac. It's fantastic. He sent us a copy to review. It's super simple and super easy. And it goes through the history of pilgrimages and different places you could go, including Wales, Germany, England, Ireland, Scotland. I think there's some French ones in here as well. Holy Wells, kind of what their significance is, the saints that are associated with them. It's absolutely fantastic.
1: And to make it clear, in addition to, like, the historical information, it's also got, like, the information you would need to turn each entry into, like, an adventure for your TTRPG. Yes,
0: exactly.
1: For instance, I noticed that the Mont Saint-Michel has a note that you may have to fight a giant if you go there.
0: Yes, Which our listeners will be familiar with as a reference. So, do check that out. The drive through RPG link will be down in our show notes. And it will be coming out as a part of Lost Pages. It's a little indie TTRPG publishing place out of the UK. So it will be coming out there. And so we've linked Lost Pages as well. Definitely check that out. And whenever it comes out through Lost Pages, then we will also link it then. But in the meantime, definitely check it out on Drive DriveThruRPG. It's super cool. Uh, it's a travel log of shrines and other pilgrimage sites, detailed rules for relics and reliquaries, and a listing of historical miracles corresponding to familiar clerical spells. So super fun. Definitely check it out. It's 128 pages of great content. So without further ado, we'll get back to our regularly scheduled episode, but definitely give Mike and This cool supplement, some love. Yes. Hello, listeners. Before we get into this week's episode, we have a massive announcement to give you guys. We've just launched our very first Kickstarter. It's called Marginal Worlds, the Magic Item Expansion Pack. And what it is, is all the stuff that you know and love from the podcast. And we've finally turned it into a thing that you can play.
1: To be fair, it's some of the stuff that you know and love from the podcast. That's true. We
0: haven't created a whole setting just yet. But what we have created is a magic item deck of 50 medieval magic items pulled directly from the manuscripts. We've got Sir Gawain's Axe. We've got some stuff from Vows, We've got some stuff from... The toy. it's all sprinkled in there and it is entirely system neutral. So you can play it in whatever game you love to play, whether it's D&D, Pathfinder, if you want to put it in, in Warhammer, go for it. Hell yeah. So it's a 50 item deck of cards and it's associated GM's guide. These will be printed. We will also have digital only versions that you can check out. And it will be live on June 1st of this year, 2024. So if you are interested, please, please, please do check it out. You guys are the ones that have inspired this. And we are so excited to announce it and to launch it and to do it. It's been in the works for about a year now, honestly. And it's thanks to you guys that we get to create this. And you can check out the cards themselves and the interior of the GM's guide on our Kickstarter teaser page. So definitely check that out. Give us your feedback. What do you like? Do you like it? And if you want to back it, sign up. It's through you guys that we get to make this a reality. And we're just so excited to share it with you and make it come to life. So definitely check it out. We've got a D&D appendix. We've got the lore appendix. So if you're interested in all of our sources, you can check that out. And yeah, we're so thrilled to finally be doing this project and talk about it with you. Yeah.
1: The D&D appendix, by the way, is if you don't want a system agnostic supplement and would just like to pop it straight into D&D 5e, we have provided that. Yep.
0: Done and dusted. You don't have to do any of the work yourself. And it's all been playtested and we think it's pretty solid and would love to know what you think of it as well. So definitely check it out. Thank you for supporting us as the podcast. And we hope that you will support us in our first little publishing endeavor. All right, back to your regularly scheduled program, but definitely check it out in the show notes below. Hello, lovely listeners, you are back with us, the Maniculum As usual, I'm Zoe, your host, a professional game developer, and I'm here with Mac, the other host of the podcast, a PhD candidate at Purdue University. And we're back with Procopius this week, and who knows what we are actually going to glean from this wild text but you can definitely use it in your ttrpg your campaign your DD, your novel whatever you are creating there is a glorious nugget of medieval gold in this storm that is the byzantine political world it's awful they're awful
1: they're awful I'm going to go ahead and say that this episode in particular is basically a whole plot that you can just take and put into your game or novel, and it will take anyone who is not like knowledgeable of Byzantine history by complete surprise, because it makes no sense, but it's a real thing that happened, and so it is plausible for you to
0: these use. These are my favorite, and that's exactly what Tolkien did. It is what GRR R. Martin did. I love when you find these nuggets of history and turn them into... Like fiction that you can read that is not reading a textbook. That's like, that's the best. I love it. So I'm very excited to get into this one. But before that, obligatory shout out to all of our listeners and our social media because that's how you guys connect with us and we love when you connect with us. So, as per usual, we have our Discord, we have what is left of Twitter. We have Mastodon. We have a Tumblr, which is fantastic. We do events on Discord and Tumblr. We also technically have an Instagram, so we do post updates there on when things come out. But honestly, the best places to get in touch with us are Discord and the Tumblr and on our own website. We have a yeah. contact form there. So even if you don't feel like you want to, like, you know, make an account on Discord or make an account on Tumblr or whatever, you don't need to. All you need is an email. And you probably have one of those. Or, you know, like, you could write us a letter. I don't think we have an address posted, but write us a letter on, on the website. There yeah. you go. You ha- you have to have an email at, at the minimum. But you figured out how to listen to a podcast, so...
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I assume anyone who is sufficiently anti-technology to not have an email is probably not listening to podcasts either.
0: That's true, but that's an audience that we need to grab. That's our niche.
1: All right, we'll 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 get a radio transmitter.
0: There we go. Ham radio. That's what's <laughs> next for us. Anyway, <laughs> while we sort that out, <laughs> come hang out with us on Discord, on Tumblr, on any of our other social media. And if you'd like to support the show and help us set up our ham radio, we have a Patreon. You get extra great content there with all of our little... TTRPG creations that we come up with from the episodes. So things that we talk about in the episode, we kind of take and sit down with and turn into monsters or quests or plot hooks, things like that, that you can use in games. So if you're interested in those and other bonus content that is on our Patreon. So your support means the world to us. That's why we get to do this and you guys make it happen. You really do. So thank you patrons and... With that, let's get into this this plot. I'm excited. What is happening with Procopius and our Byzantine friends and enemies?
1: Yeah, we teased this a little bit on the last episode because it's a it's a weird historical event.
0: Oh, it did you did, but I can't remember.
1: Zoe, can you tell us what you know? I know. I, I love oh, doing no. this to you because you always get this oh, panicked no. look. Oh no! What I you do. know about the Nika riots?
0: Mmm. Mm hmm. Yes, football fans to the extreme. What I remember about the Nika riots, and mind you, this is like from freshman year of undergrad, is that essentially during this period, sports was kind of like, it wasn't as sedentary as it is now. We kind of engage in sports by, you know, sitting in the car listening to the radio, or we watch it on TV. I wouldn't know. I don't, I don't really watch sports. Fencing is not usually televised. But... It's more sedentary for us. If you go to a game, it's kind of a luxury thing. It's kind of expensive. But that was a huge thing for people in Constantinople and Byzantium. And that was a massive city. And sports teams were not just like, cool, go Seahawks, go Colts, go whatever. I'm trying to come up with sports teams that I know, and I can't think of any uh, Steelers.
1: I'm required to object to the Colts as a Baltimorean.
0: Oh, that's that's fair. Who who plays in Baltimore?
1: The Ravens, but it, the, it used to be the Colts, but they like left oh. under cover of night <gasps> and switched to Indianapolis, and so I'm I'm required to hate them.
0: That's wild. I had no idea the Colts just left the Baltimore Crabs. That's a, another reference. If anyone gets that reference, let me know. Anyway, we love the Baltimore Crabs. So sports teams were a. Big deal, because not only did they bring, like, the culture together, they were also political. Mm-hmm. And you might think that sports are political in America today. They are not. Not in the Byzantine way. So, these were, these fans, and these teams, I think, too, correct me if I'm wrong there.
1: I'm not sure to what extent the actual athletes were involved. Right, but
0: the fans, like, yeah. these super fans, became gangs in the city of Constantinople. Yeah,
1: if you're in the UK, you may know the term football hooliganism. It's like that but on a larger scale.
0: What I I don't remember precisely how the riots started, but essentially the quick version is that sports game goes bad somehow and these teams these gangs, not the teams themselves, but the gangs riot throughout the city. And it's like a giant political uprising in Constantinople. Yeah. How close am I?
1: Pretty close, actually.
0: That's like the, the snippet version that you'd read in a history book.
1: Yeah. And, of course, we do have sports riots in the U.S., but they're not as organized. It's not often, like, fans of two different teams fighting each other. It's usually, like, either people celebrating a victory or angry about a defeat and it gets out of hand and turns into widespread property destruction.
0: Yeah, they'll, like, flip a car over. Yeah,
1: which is which is why uh, they grease the light poles in Philly whenever there's a home game. So you can't climb them. They do not. Mm-hmm. Really? Yep.
0: <gasps> why, why are we spending taxpayer dollars on that kind of infrastructure over
1: sports ball? Well, I mean... That's dumb. I feel like it's reasonable for the city to try and protect the infrastructure.
0: Well, yeah, but I'm more—I'm more annoyed at the fact that these sports ball dudes are getting that worked up over fucking chucking a ball back and forth. But okay.
1: Yeah, I have similar opinions on sports, but honestly, I—I I cannot express them without sounding condescending and insulting. So I'm just not gonna—I'm gonna say I agree with you and move on.
0: You know what? You know what happens. At fencing matches when you throw your gear or if a coach or a parent like makes a stink.
1: I assume you get ejected.
0: You do. You get ejected and you get black carded, which means you cannot turn back up for another year. Oh, wow. That's what happens because fencing has etiquette. You have to shake hands with people. You gotta bow to each other. It's a
1: refined (laughs) and upper class sport. It is an upper class sport.
0: (laughs) Oh, I sound awful, don't I? (laughs) At least we have manners. Anyway, so these hooligans.
1: Yeah, alright, so let's get into it. So, we've been reading mostly from the secret history, because that's the text we're doing. (laughs) But, as we've pointed out a couple times, when Procopius is writing the secret history, it's because he's planning to go back at some point and add this material back into his other histories. Into the wars, really.
0: When... What's her name is dead
1: when Justinian dies. Really?
0: Oh, when Justinian. I think Procopius
1: outlives Theodora, but not Justinian.
0: That's right. That's right. I would have been worried about Theodora more, to be honest. But
1: well, I think that's mostly just because we've talked about her more. We haven't gotten to the part where Justinian is a demon in human form. That's coming up later.
0: That's true. Do we get one of those great descriptions? the rulers are not just like oh yes he was a demon no they're like his flesh puckered and his you know his eyes were dark red and he had pustules on his nose and like he has to also be very ugly Mm -hmm. in order to be that bad of an emperor like they you know they cleanliness is next to godliness and apparently you know being a bad politician also comes with being really ugly
1: I think there's a description of his appearance that's also coming up in a couple episodes. It's not quite that bad, but the, the comparisons made are more like Oof. where the line is.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I'm excited for that one. Okay, so anyway, anyway.
1: Right, so the point I was making there is Procopius, when he's writing the secret history, is assuming that his audience has read the wars. Yeah. So he doesn't give the background information. So in order to, like, give a more full account of this event... I've pulled up the relevant chapter from The Wars, because the doing translation is public domain, so it's all on archive.org. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to read that, and then I'm going to read the part in The Secret History where he gives more details about it. Beautiful.
0: We get the whole picture. Yeah,
1: and then I think we're going to be out of time. We'll see.
0: Okay. All right. All right, so... So this is about the riots, too. Yes. Like, he says The Wars, and, and we're kind of going insular into Constantinople.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah. This is in his History of the Wars, but it is about an insurrection inside the city, which I guess counts. So, this is Book 1, Chapter 24. At this same time, an insurrection broke out unexpectedly in Byzantium among the populace, and contrary to expectation, it proved to be a very serious affair, and ended in great harm to the people and to the Senate, as the following account will show. In every city, the population has been divided for a long time past into the blue and the green factions.
0: Wait, in every city?
1: Yes, let's stop here for a bit. Okay. All right, so this goes back pretty much as far as you can go in Roman history, is that there are chariot racing teams, and they are identified by colors. Yep. Originally, it was the red team and the white team. Then they added the blue team and the green team. And briefly, under, I think, Domitian, who was a big fan of chariot races, they added the purple team and the gold team, so there'd be more excitement. Six teams. That's a lot. Yeah, but the purple and gold team didn't really last.
0: Okay. So, real quick, is this like a a nationally institutionalized affair? Or does every city have their own little red team?
1: You know, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know whether the... Every city has has like a separate red team, or if it's the same red team traveling yeah. around, or if there's like a national red team and all the individual and then red like teams a, are like like
0: regional, you know? Yeah, coordinating. Yeah.
1: I don't actually yeah. know what the structure is there.
0: Interesting. Okay, I was like, is there like a little league, and then you get into like the major leagues? Okay, all right. Also, little league chariot racing sounds like a hell of a time and extraordinarily dangerous. It does. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Just curious.
1: When I was originally reading through Procopius, I made a note based on my attempts to research into the history of these colored teams. Mm -hmm. And it said, uh, see Tertullian for origins of these teams.
0: I saw this note. (laughs) Because this is on Tumblr, you posted I did
1: post this on Tumblr, yeah. And so I was like, oh, I wish I'd given myself more detail, but fine, you know, I'll look this up. I found Tertullian and the bit about the teams, and it turns out that Tertullian is an early Christian and his whole text is about how it should be illegal to have fun.
0: Yeah, that sounds pretty right for early Christianity and asceticism.
1: So he's got this whole bit about how the games are terrible because they are worldly pleasures and no Christian should ever attend them, and one of his sub-points is about the origin of the teams, but it's because the origin of the teams is pagan.
0: Who could have guessed? Thanks, Tertullian.
1: So this is from Tertullian's De Spectaculis. He's just finished talking about who invented chariot racing. He's like giving some history,
0: and that's on the on the origin of the spectacles, right? Yeah, yeah, of, of the games.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm just gonna cut in at the end of the section here. Perfect. If at Rome, Romulus was the first to display a four-horse chariot, he, I fancy, is enrolled among the idols himself. Such being, the inventors who produced them, chariots very properly have their drivers clad in the colors of idolatry. (laughs) For at first there were but two colors, white and red. White was sacred to winter for the gleaming white of the snow, red to summer because of the sun's redness. Afterwards, as pleasure and superstition gained ground together, some dedicated the red to Mars, others the white to the zephyrs, the green to Mother Earth or spring, the blue to sky and sea or autumn. But since idolatry in every form has been condemned by God, that form also is assuredly condemned, which is consecrated to the elements of nature."
0: Uh, alright. I mean, Christians also do the same kind of color theory. White is purity, and red is the blood of Christ, and...
1: It's, but if it represents something in the natural world, that's nature worship, and you're wrong, and you're going to hell. That's nature
0: worship, bro! Alright. What a loser.
1: But anyway, <laughs> that's the source I have. The point is, there were four teams. I don't know what happened to the red and white team. I have not been able to find any indication of whether those teams just stopped existing at some point, or if they're just not as popular.
0: The red and white or the green and or the purple and the gold.
1: The purple and gold did stop existing. They were only very oh. briefly a thing.
0: Oh, okay, okay. But the red
1: but the and red white and were white. the original teams, but once we start hearing about like the chariot fans having right. significant political power, it's always about the blues and the greens.
0: Oh. oh so I don't okay, know whether right.
1: the whether the reds and the whites are gone or if they're just not as popular and so they don't have the same like thing going on.
0: Their gangs aren't really that, you know, extra.
1: Yeah. But anyway, that's what we're talking about with the blues and the greens.
0: Okay. All right.
1: Inserting a Babylon 5 joke about this situation will be left as an exercise for the listener. So, continuing with Procopius. But within comparatively recent times, it has come about that, for the sake of these names and the seats which the rival factions occupy in watching the games, they have their own, like, stands. Mm-hmm. Home in a way, I guess, but they're yeah. they're all the home team. So
0: well, tournament, like in our tournament episode that we talked about, the Dolorous Night, they also did that. Yeah, when they set up tournaments, home yeah. and away stands. So Apparently, this, this that's is just, just like
1: always been how sports are done. Blue,
0: yeah, at least blue in the side, Western green world. side.
1: For the sake of these names and the seats which the rival factions occupy in watching the games, they spend their money and abandon their bodies to the most cruel tortures, and even do not think it unworthy to die a most shameful death and they fight against their opponents, knowing not for what end they imperil themselves, but knowing well that, even if they overcome their enemy in the fight, the conclusion of the matter for them will to be carried off straight away to the prison, and finally, after suffering extreme torture, to be destroyed. Okay. So he's, he's just saying, like, these separate fan clubs, whatever you want to call them, are always engaging in violence, and it's stupid because there's no actual point to it, and even if they win, they're just going to be arrested anyway.
0: Anyway. Right. Okay. Sure. I mean, it does sound stupid. I, I concur.
1: So there grows up in them against their fellow men a hostility which has no cause, and at no time does it cease or disappear, for it gives place neither to the ties of marriage, nor of relationship, nor of friendship. And the case is the same even though those who differ with respect to these colors be brothers or any other kin.
0: Yeah, I've seen that.
1: Brother against brother.
0: (laughs) I mean, like, I've seen that with, like, dudes in sports, you know? Like, to be fair, I say dudes in sports because I've never met a woman who's been that into, like, football that they start insulting and screaming at each other.
1: I'm sure they're out there, but yeah, I don't think I've met one either.
0: Yeah, I've just never met one.
1: Yeah. They care neither for things divine nor human in comparison with conquering in these struggles, and it matters not whether a sacrilege is committed by anyone at all against God, or whether the laws and the Constitution are violated by friend or by foe. Nay, even when they are perhaps ill-supplied with the necessities of life, and when their fatherland is in the most pressing need and suffering unjustly, they pay no heed, if only it is likely to go well with their, quote, faction, unquote, for so they name the bands of partisans.
0: Bala's life.
1: Yeah, basically. (laughs)
0: Amazing. Incredible.
1: And even women join with them in this unholy strife, and they not only follow the men, but even resist them if opportunity offers, although they neither go to the public exhibitions at all, nor are they impelled by any other cause, so that I, for my part, am unable to call this anything except a disease of the soul. Basically, women are also involved in this conflict between the factions even though they don't really go to the games. They're yeah. just kind of doing it.
0: We're a blue family. Yeah, obviously. exactly. Exactly yeah. like that. It's you know, it reminds me of colleges in Texas like like there's um the Aggies, which is like Texas A&M and then there's I don't I don't even remember what the other one is cuz I I stayed with a family who like they all went to A&M. And, like, that was it. That was it. Like, they were obsessed with how the Aggies were doing. And I just, I didn't get it. I totally didn't get it. But it was like, that's their school. That's how it goes. So that culture's alive and well, hopefully slightly less violent.
1: Yeah, when I when I lived in Mississippi, I observed a similar thing with fans of the Alabama Crimson Tide. Although I think most of them didn't actually attend the university. They just liked the sports yeah. team.
0: Yeah, they just, yeah, it's like the local, the local thing.
1: I learned to recognize the colors because... During the year, I spent working graveyard shift at a gas station. All of our most like problematic, rambunctious, destructive customers were wearing crimson-tied apparel. Like, of it, course, it was just they
0: were. Thing. Yeah, yeah.
1: Otherwise, I probably never would have noticed that this was like a, a cultural.
0: Yeah. Vibe. Well, I mean, the years keep going, but human nature stays the same with yeah. sports, apparently.
1: Yeah, yeah. Again, same as it ever was. Yeah. This, then, is pretty well how matters stand among the people of each and every city. But at this time, the officers of the city administration in Byzantium were leading away to death some of the rioters. Because they'd been, you know, killing each other. That's illegal.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, like, okay, all right, destruction of property we get, but you can't actually kill
1: your neighbor. But the members of the two factions conspiring together and declaring a truce with each other, seized the prisoners and then straight away entered the prison and released all those who were in confinement there, whether they had been condemned on a charge of stirring up sedition or for any other unlawful act.
0: That is wild.
1: Yeah, like, on one hand, you got, like, the situation is the rioters are being rounded up by the cops for, like, beating yeah. each other to death over sports. Right. Right. And at this point, the two separate teams, the, the Mets and the Yankees or whatever, decide, you, yeah. know, you know what? Our common enemy is the cops, which based, but also weird place to come <laughs> from there. Right. And so they work together to fight off the cops and break open the prison.
0: But And they break everybody out. Yeah, they just let, like let everyone It's like Bastille loose. Day.
1: And it escalates from there. Oh, no. And all the attendants in the service of the city government were killed indiscriminately. Meanwhile, all of the citizens who were sane-minded were fleeing to the opposite mainland. Because Constantinople's on the, like, horn. So, like, you can go over a body of water and be separate from whatever's going on there. Yeah. And fire was applied to the city as if it had fallen under the hand of an enemy.
0: So, okay, that sounds to me like... I don't know if they had trebuchets at that point, but that sounds to me like... Government officials are, like, calling in, like, the city guard or, like, the state troopers, whatever the the equivalent is. Yeah.
1: Yeah, whatever they have. Saying cops is definitely anachronistic. They did not have anything like modern police.
0: Yeah, like, the next the next level of of person. And they're like, cool, all right. The city is in an insurrection. It's under We're going to do the same thing as though we were under attack and this part of the city had been taken. Mm-hmm. That's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like they're hurling fireballs into that section of the city.
1: Or they might just be setting fires everywhere, and the extent of it is so dramatic that oh, it has this effect. That's wild. The Sanctuary of Sophia. I think so- that's the Hagia Sophia. Mm-hmm. And the Baths of Zuxippus. And the portion of the Imperial residence from the...
0: Okay, not to not to go too geeky on you here, but Assassin's Creed... Revelation is set in Constantinople. It's set in the Renaissance, so later than all of this, but you can go see like the palace and you can go see the baths, and it's actually really cool. And I love the city design in that game. And they do a good job of finding like the layout of the actual city. Like they're not making it up. So it is historically, you know, referenced and based. So if you're interested in kind of exploring that check out Assassin's Creed Revelation because I did really enjoy that game. People don't like it as much as Assassin's Creed 2, which objectively is the best, but I enjoyed it. Fair. Yeah.
1: Anyway, uh, the portion of the Imperial residence from the Propylia, which is apparently a monumental gate, as far as the so-called House of Ares were destroyed by fire. And besides these, both the great colonnades, which extended as far as the marketplace, which bears the name of Constantine, in addition to many houses of wealthy men and a vast amount of treasure. During this time, the emperor and his consort, with a few members of the senate, shut themselves up in the palace and remained quietly there. I would too, to be honest. Although, you know, this is kind of your job, man.
0: You give the orders, but I wouldn't expect the emperor to go out and do anything.
1: No, but he should at least be involved in, like, giving direction. That's true. Which it doesn't sound like he is if he's shutting himself up in the palace and remaining quietly there. (laughs) Yeah, 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 fair enough. Now the watchword which the populace passed around to one another was Nika, and the insurrection has been called by this name up to the present time.
0: Now what's that about?
1: Okay, so I actually know this.
0: Ooh, I'm excited.
1: So Nika is what you chant at a chariot race. Because
0: it's like Nike, right? Exactly. Like it's yeah. like
1: it's like Nike. They're just saying like win
0: victory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's- so they're saying it's like a victory over like the the city officials.
1: Yeah, but like oh they're gosh. they're they're picking this term because it's they're sports fans. That's what right. you chant during the sports.
0: Amazing, amazing. So the victory riots. Yes,
1: and also for anyone confused, Nike is not just a shoe. It is also a goddess.
0: Yes, Nike is the goddess of victory.
1: Yes, and is also the word for victory.
0: Yes. Greek. That's Greek, not Byzantine, hence why Nika.
1: Yeah, I guess the, uh, I mean, it might just be a different conjugation. I don't know. Because, like, they're still speaking Greek, but it's a different era of Greek. So maybe it's a sound change. Maybe it's a conjugation. I don't know. I don't know either. Future Mac here. I still can't swear to it because I don't speak Greek. But looking into it briefly, It does appear that the imperative form of the verb to win is nika, which would be what you would shout at someone as a spectator when you're telling them to win. So I would bet that it's a conjugation rather than a sound change. The Praetorian Prefect at that time was John the Cappadocian and Tribunianus, a Pamphylian by birth, was counselor to the emperor, this person the Romans call quaestor. Got it. One of these two men, John, was entirely without the advantages of a liberal education, for he learned nothing while attending the elementary school except his letters. And these two, poorly enough.
0: That's something, bro! Education is hard to come by during this time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But by his natural ability, he became the most powerful man of whom we know, for he was most capable in deciding upon what was needful and in finding a solution for difficulties. But he became the basest of all men and employed his natural power to further his low designs. Neither consideration for God nor any shame before man entered into his mind, but to destroy the lives of many men for the sake of gain and to wreck whole cities was his constant concern.
0: Well, that's pretty damning. How true that is, we'll never know.
1: Also correct, yeah. So within a short time indeed, he had acquired vast sums of money, and he flung himself completely into the sordid life of a drunken scoundrel. For up to the time of lunch each day, he would plunder the property of his subject. Yeah. I'd like to has as a timetable, like 8 a.m. to 11 yep. a.m. Plunder the property Crime, of his yeah. subject, 11 a.m. to 12 <laughs> p.m., lunch. And for the rest of the day, 12 p.m. Yeah, to yeah. question mark, Occupy himself with drinking and with wanton mm-hmm. deeds of lust.
0: Yeah. 7pm to 10pm. Wanton deeds of lust. <laughs> yep. Well.
1: I mean, that sounds like a good schedule. I'd take <laughs> it's that work schedule. pretty good. Yeah. Alrighty. And he was utterly unable to control himself, for he ate food until he vomited. And he was always ready to steal money and more ready to bring it out and spend it. Such a man, then, was John. Well... Tribunianus, on the other hand, both possessed natural ability and in educational attachments, was inferior to none of his contemporaries. But he was extraordinarily fond of the pursuit of money and always ready to sell justice for gain. Therefore, every day, as a rule, he was repealing some laws and proposing others, selling off to those who requested it either favour according to their need. He's meeting with lobbyists and just like, <laughs> this.
0: Yeah, you're right. Okay, so that's John, and who else? Who was the second guy? Tribunianus. Tribunianus, All right, that's really funny that that's his name.
1: Yeah. Is that his name or his title? I assume it's his name, because Iannis is a is a is the ending is of the the end name. of a name. Yeah,
0: that's just funny because like Tribune is yeah, it's also an a title. office. Yeah, yeah.
1: Anyway. Now, as long as the people were waging this war with each other in behalf of the names of the colors, no attention was paid to the offenses of these men against the constitution. That might be an anachronism. (laughs) But when the factions came to a mutual understanding, as has been said, and so began the sedition, then openly throughout the whole city, they began to abuse the two and went about seeking them to kill. So when this violence breaks out and they start killing city officials, they're like, you know who we should get? Those two guys. Yeah, understood. Accordingly, the emperor, wishing to win the people to his side, so he was kind of paying attention, Instantly dismissed both of these men from office.
0: (laughs) Which means they don't have any protection anymore. Yeah.
1: Oh, no. But I mean, you kind of have to respect that. Like if people are out there chanting like, hang the secretary of state for his crimes. And the president is like, you know what? That guy's fired. You got you win. Like that's a way to defuse things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we could we could learn some things. From I mean that, but
1: alternately, you are possibly screwing over your, your secretary or whatever.
0: I don't think that stopped any politician. Yeah, but ever. it's it's
1: it's no longer your concern. At least right. you can say you did something.
0: Yeah, yeah. Look, I, it was a I had to do something. The people were upset. Excuses. Anyway, so they're like, go after this these guys now. They don't have positions.
1: Yeah, and focus a patrician. He appointed Praetorian prefect. This was the role he just fired John from a man of the greatest discretion and fitted by nature to be a guardian of justice. Basilides, he commanded to fill the office of Quaestor, a man known among the patricians for his agreeable qualities and a notable besides." I I think it just means an important person. Yeah, fair. However, the insurrection continued no less violently under them. Now, on the fifth day of the insurrection, in the late afternoon, the Emperor Justinian gave orders to Hypatius and Pompeius, Nephews of the late Emperor Anastasius—that was the emperor who uh, appointed Justinus, Justinian's uncle, yep. to be his successor. Yep. Which is weird now that we know he had he had his own like nephews hanging around. Wonder why they didn't get the job. I Maybe mean, they were I too young. I guess you he liked
0: Justinian better.
1: Yeah. Anyway, he he gave orders to these nephews to go home as quickly as possible, either because he suspected that some plot was being matured by them against his own person. Valid.
0: No kidding. Yeah.
1: Or it may be because destiny brought them to this.
0: Thanks, Procopius. I love that. I love what the historians are like, it could be because of these historical reasons or fate.
1: Oh, okay. I'm getting some some context here. I kind of get where they're coming from on this one, actually. But they feared that the people would force them to the throne. Apparently, they don't actually want their uncle's old seat. Maybe it's too much responsibility for them and they're uh... fine where they are.
0: They just want somebody else to take... You can't have a vacuum of power.
1: Right, but they are, like, Anastasius's potential heirs, so they're, like, if they're rioting against the current government, maybe they want to put us, and they're like, I don't actually want that job.
0: I don't... Yeah, that's not... There's a high mortality
1: rate to being emperor. True. And they said that they would be doing wrong if they should abandon their sovereign when he found himself in such danger. When the emperor Justinian heard this, he inclined still more to his suspicion... Which, also, I get, because, like, I think his thing is he does, he wouldn't understand why someone wouldn't want to be emperor. So if they're going like, no, no, we want to hang around with you, he's like, why? He's like, why? Why? What are you planning?
0: Yeah, yeah. There's so many layers of, like, suspicion and toxic relationships going on.
1: Yeah, that's kind of, well, that's what palace intrigue is, really.
0: That's true. That is true.
1: And he bade them to quit the palace instantly. Thus then, these two men betook themselves to their homes, and as long as it was night, they remained there quietly. But on the following day, at sunrise, it became known to the people that both men had quit the palace where they had been staying. So they go home for the night, and then in the morning, word gets out that they've been, like, kicked out of the palace. Yeah, yeah. So the whole population ran to them, and they declared Hypatius Emperor.
0: No! This is not what anybody wanted!
1: (laughs) It is not what anybody wanted! And prepared to lead him to the marketplace to assume the power.
0: No, buddy, no!
1: But the wife of Hypatius, Mary, a discreet woman who had the greatest reputation for prudence, laid hold of her husband and would not let go, but cried out with loud lamentations and with entreaties to all of her kinsmen that the people were leading him on the road to death.
0: Yeah. That's what I would believe.
1: But since the throng overpowered her, she unwillingly released her husband. And he, by no will of his own, came to the Forum of Constantine, where they summoned him to the throne. Wild. Then, since they had neither diadem nor anything else with which it is customary for a king to be clothed, they placed a golden necklace upon his head and proclaimed him Emperor of the Romans.
0: We'll use our VIP badges, our little, our lanyards.
1: It's gold. It's a circle. Put it on (gasps) your head.
0: Yeah. Wow. Okay. All of this from the riots.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, they're, if you're already like killing government officials, you may as well go all the way and do a coup.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. That's true.
1: By this time, the members of the Senate were assembling, as many of them as had not been left in the Emperor's residence. Because some of them are holed up in the palace with Justinian.
0: Right. Which, again, like, that's a compound. It's not, it's not just, like, a big manor house. Like, that is a compound.
1: Yes, yes, it's, it's huge. And many expressed the opinion that they should go to the palace to fight. But Origines, Dr. K does have a note on this guy, Origines is almost certainly a figure invented by Procopius to deliver the speech that I'm about to read.
0: Origines? Origines. He's an original character? (laughs) Yes. Procopius, you really couldn't have done anything else.
1: Oh no, it's because here's the explanation of why he has this name. At the time that Procopius was finishing the wars, Justinian was trying to have the 3rd century theologian Origines declared to be a heretic. So he just named a guy after a theologian that Justinian hated.
0: Trying to kill,
1: yeah. Well, not trying to kill. He'd been dead Um, for 300 years, but... That's... He just
0: hated it, yeah. Yeah,
1: he's like, no, that guy was wrong. Because, you know, we talked about how Justinian... One of Justinian's things, we talked about this with Dr. Caldellus, was like... Trying to resolve all these schisms by just saying like, "All right, everyone, do what I say," and this is part. Yeah,
0: of yeah, come like come together. We're gonna we're gonna play hunky dory and yeah. make a you know, make a
1: decree. Yeah, we're we're gonna have a council about the theological issues, and here's what you're <laughs> yeah. going to decide. <laughs> oh well. Anyway, Origines, a man of the Senate, came forward and spoke as follows: "Fellow Romans, it is impossible that the situation which is upon us be solved in any way except by war." Now, war and royal power are agreed to be the greatest of all things in the world. What the f***? What the f***? But when action involves great issues, it refuses to be brought to a successful conclusion by the brief crisis of a moment, but this is accomplished only by wisdom of thought and energy of action, which men display for a length of time. He's really breaking out the old-fashioned rhetorical training here. Yeah, yeah. Therefore, if we should go out against the enemy, our cause will hang in the balance, and we shall be taking a risk which will decide everything in a brief space of time. And as regards the consequences of such action, we shall either fall down and worship fortune, or reproach her altogether. For those things whose issue it is most quickly decided fall, as a rule, under the sway of fortune. But if we handle the present situation more deliberately, not even if we wish shall we be able to take Justinian in the palace, but he will very speedily be thankful if he is allowed to flee or authority which is ignored always loses its power. (laughs) Fair, also.
0: Authority which is ignored always loses its power.
1: That's a good line.
0: It's a great line. I can't tell if it's true or not. Because, like, I don't feel like, "Mm, I don't know about that, bro, but kind of, I guess if
1: everyone just decides we're not listening to that guy anymore, then even if he still holds a title, it it doesn't matter.
0: That's true. Yeah.
1: It does have to be kind of unanimous, though.
0: Yeah. I like it
1: since its strength ebbs away with each day. Moreover, we have other palaces, both Placiliane and the palace named from Helen, which this emperor should make his headquarters, and from there he should carry on the war and attend to the ordering of all other matters in the best possible way. To summarize, this is a dangerous situation. We need to handle this correctly. Step one should be to get Justinian out of here and headquarter him somewhere that's not in the middle of a burning city.
0: Yes, yes. Okay.
1: So spoke Origines, but the rest, as a crowd is accustomed to do, insisted more excitedly, and thought that the present moment was opportune, and not least of all Hypatius, for it was fated that evil should befall him, bade them lead the way to the Hippodrome.
0: So they're like, no, we gotta deal with this now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, like, no, no. We have to act immediately.
0: Yeah. Cooler heads shall not prevail.
1: Hypatius bade them lead the way to the Hippodrome but some say that he came there purposely, being well disposed towards the emperor. Now, the emperor and his court were deliberating as to whether it would be better for them if they remained or if they took to flight in the ships, and many opinions were expressed favoring either course. And the empress Theodora also spoke to the following effect.
0: I'm so ready.
1: Oh man, I'm gonna have to do like a whole... That's almost a whole page, and I'm gonna have to do a high voice. Ooh, you got it, you got it. You don't have to. Yeah, but I I gave the other guy a voice. All right. As to the belief that a woman ought not to be daring among men or to assert herself boldly among those who are holding back from fear, I consider that the present crisis most certainly does not permit us to discuss whether the matter should be regarded in this or in some other way. For in the case of those whose interests have come into the greatest danger, nothing else seems best except to settle the issue immediately before them in the best possible way. My opinion then is that, the present time, above all others, is inopportune for flight, even though it brings safety. For while Hmm. it is impossible for a man who has seen the light not also to die, for one who has been an emperor, it is unendurable to be a fugitive. May I never be separated from this purple, and may I not live that day on which those who meet me shall not address me as mistress. Holy sh**. If now it is your wish to save yourself, O oh Emperor, there is no difficulty, for we have much money and there is the sea, here are the boats. However, consider whether it will not come about after you have been saved, that you would gladly exchange that safety for death. For as for myself, I approve a certain ancient saying that royalty is a good burial shroud." <laughs> so, to summarize, she's saying, listen, if our options are to flee and thus lose our authority or to stay here and die trying to hold our authority, I'm picking the second option. I'm going to be in charge until they kill me. End of story.
0: What a character. Like, she's an absolute b- but what a character.
1: I know, right?
0: She's an incredibly powerful figure. And she's basically, like, she's kind of calling her husband, like, a weenie here. Yeah.
1: Like, you can run if you want. Boats are right over there. I won't.
0: Yeah, she's like, I'm going to stay here and be an empress because that's my right. That's impressive.
1: And, of course, we trash talk her because Procopius does. As Dr. K has indicated, there's no way to nail down just what kind of person she was because all the sources are biased. Right, of course. When the queen had spoken thus, all were filled with boldness, and turning their thoughts towards resistance, they began to consider how they might be able to defend themselves if any hostile force should come against them.
0: I will say, she does seem like an individual who would be able to rally people yeah. around her, regardless of like what you think of, of her and her politics.
1: Yeah, To to make a comparison that I think Procopius would probably approve of... What that whole thing reminds me of is the I would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven bit from Milton.
0: Yes, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is what literally the devil says.
1: Yes, that is Lucifer. When he
0: flees, yeah.
1: But like, he's also a strong leader. You got to give him that.
0: Yeah, no, he, he's incredibly effective. So she's gonna, she's gonna have her nice purple burial shroud as yes. her plan.
1: Now the soldiers as a body, including those who were stationed about the emperor's court, were neither well disposed to the emperor nor willing openly to take an active part in fighting but were waiting for what the future would bring forth
0: uh yeah i did forget for a moment that this was that this is in fact the byzantine era and the soldiers are not loyal
1: exactly this is a constant in like mm-hmm. roman history both western roman and eastern roman is that <sighs> the soldiers are always like the Where's important thing is who's going to is, is <laughs> where is my paycheck coming from next yeah, month
0: yeah Yeah, they're gonna... That's it. They're gonna pick whoever they think will get them paid. Yeah. Which, if you're looking for a very interesting read that kind of starts off in the same line, there's a great fantasy work called The Black Company.
1: You know, I've been meaning to read that for years.
0: It's great. It's like Praetorian Guard meets Viking Warriors meets Vietnam.
1: That does sound good.
0: Yeah. And like I say Vietnam, not in like the types of battles, but in the the language and how it's written and how they speak to each other. Like nobody has an actual name. They all have like the nicknames that they go by, you oh. know, like One Eye or, I don't know, Two Shoes or, you know, whatever, whatever nickname that you get because of some embarrassing thing you did or some cool thing you did like that's how they all address each other nobody actually has a name and spoiler alert the the first like opening of the book is they're in a very similar situation where they're kind of like who's gonna pay us next and they have to make a decision so
1: this is actually why there are a lot of military coups by the way in roman history not like generally is that Mm the soldiers one of the things that soldiers would do is they're like, well, if things carry on the way they do,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm going to be, I'm going to end up in like an assignment I don't want, or I'm going to, I'm going to not get paid as much as I'd like. But if we acclaim the closest general to be our emperor, then he'll owe us. Yep. Assuming we win.
0: Assuming. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And they, that's what they did.
1: So that, that kind of happened a lot. Yeah. Anyway, all the hopes of the emperor were centered upon Belisarius and Mundus, of whom the former, Belisarius, had recently returned from the Persian War, bringing with him a following which was both powerful and imposing.
0: I will say his troops probably are very loyal to him. Because he is a very effective general.
1: Right. He can command some personal loyalty. Mm -hmm, He's just... mm -hmm. Come back from, like, some a very successful campaign. Lots of glory. People are on his side. Yeah. And in particular, he had a great number of spearmen and guards who had received their training in battles and the perils of warfare. Mundus had been appointed general of the Illyrians and by mere chance had happened to come under summons to Byzantium on some necessary errand, bringing with him a Rulian barbarians. Got it. Yeah, he's some... He's a general of a, like... Different province, he's not usually here. He happens to be here, and he's also got with him, like, a mercenary troop. Yeah. They're not waiting around saying who's going to pay us next, because the answer is Mundus is the one paying us, that's why we're here. We're going to do what Mundus says. Mm Mm-hmm. When Hypatius reached the Hippodrome, he went up immediately to where the emperor is accustomed to take his place and seated himself on the royal throne from which the emperor was always accustomed to view the equestrian and athletic contests.
0: Oh, they're really doing this. I like that because this is not the palace. This is the sports arena. That's
1: exactly what I was going to point out. They're yes! not they're not trying to put him on a throne in the palace. They're putting him in the emperor's private box in the stadium.
0: Yeah, like take him to the I don't know, give me a stadium name.
1: Camden Yards.
0: There you go. Put him there. Wow.
1: And from the palace, Mundus went out through the gate, which, from the circling descent, has been given the name of the snail, which is a great name for a gate.
0: Because it circles. It's kind of I like that. (laughs) Ten out of ten. Good architectural note.
1: Belisarius, meanwhile, began at first to go straight up towards Hypatius himself and the royal throne, and when he came to the adjoining structure where there has been a guard of soldiers from of old he cried out to the soldiers commanding them to open the door for him as quickly as possible in order that he might go against the tyrant.
0: The tyrant.
1: But since the soldiers had decided to support neither side until one of them should be manifestly victorious, they pretended not to hear at all and thus put him off.
0: (laughs) That's amazing! Oh my gosh, there's so many layers! So there's the sports hooligans and their new king of the sports. Yeah. And then there's Justinian and Mundus, who's going off to go see Sports King. Yeah. And then you've got Belisarius. Wild!
1: But he can't get in because the soldiers are just pretending he's not there because they don't want to get involved in this.
0: Uh, Not us, man.
1: (laughs) So Belisarius returned to the emperor and declared that the day was lost for them, for the soldiers who guarded the palace were rebelling against him, i.e. not listening to him when he tells them stuff.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: The emperor therefore commanded him to go to the so-called Bronze Gate and the Propiliae there. Again, monumental gates. Yep. So Belisarius, with difficulty and not without danger and great exertion, made his way over ground covered by ruins and half-burned buildings and descended to the stadium.
0: you got to remember here also that this is like a... He's not doing this alone. Yes. He's got his troop with him. But it's also really fun to imagine him, like, trudging through the burning parts of the city that have all fallen around with these sports dudes, like, in their colored
1: jerseys. (laughs) So he's finding another way into the stadium. And when he had reached the blue colonnade, which is on the right of the emperor's throne, he purposed to go against Hypatius himself first. But since there was a small door there, which had been closed, and was guarded by the soldiers of Hypatius who were inside, He feared lest while he was struggling in the narrow space, the populace should fall upon him, and after destroying both himself and all of his followers, should proceed with less trouble and difficulty against the emperor.
0: Yeah, I would be worried too.
1: Concluding, therefore, that he must go against the populace who had taken their stand in the Hippodrome. The the Hippodrome is the chariot racing arena, if, if that wasn't clear. A vast multitude crowding each other in great disorder. He drew his sword from its sheath and, commanding the others to do likewise, with a shout he advanced upon them at a run.
0: He's just gonna slaughter these civilians. Yes, he's just, I mean, I he's just charging rioters, the hooligans. But
1: oh my god! They are technically in rebellion.
0: Yeah, they are. I guess, but right now they're not being violent. I mean, they are crowning a king. Wow. All right.
1: If you want to maintain royal power, killing anyone who says that someone else they is are, the king yeah. is kind of like an important step.
0: You yeah, you have to do that. I'm just I'm just impressed like tear gas anybody, but like they're just like, "Nope, we're doing this." All right, swords out.
1: They they don't have these things. They yeah, have Greek yeah. fire, but that would be worse.
0: That's true. Yeah, that's true. All right.
1: Here we go. But the populace, who were standing in a mass and not in order, at the sight of armored soldiers who had a great reputation for bravery and experience in war, and seeing that they struck out with their swords unsparingly, beat a hasty retreat.
0: Oh, but they did.
1: Then a great outcry arose, as was natural, and Mundus, who was standing not far away, was eager to join in the fight, for he was a daring and energetic fellow. But he was at a loss as to what he should do under the circumstances. When, however, he observed that Belisarius was in the struggle, he straightaway made a sally into the Hippodrome through the entrance which they call the Gate of Death. I don't know why they call it that.
0: Maybe the Hippodrome is also used for, like, gladiator fights and stuff, I assume. It's not just chariot racing.
1: I'm not sure if they still do that.
0: Hmm. I don't know. Good
1: question. Then indeed from both sides the partisans of Hypatius were assailed with might and main and destroyed, when the rout had become complete and there had already been great slaughter of the populace. Boreades and Justus, nephews of the Emperor Justinian, without anyone daring to lift a hand against them, dragged Hypatius down from the throne, and leading him in, handed him over together with Pompeius, I think that's the other nephew?
0: Nephew. I think so. So... I thought, okay, so who was the guy who who was crowned? I thought he was a
1: nephew. He was, that's Hypatius.
0: So his, his, the other nephews are like, nah, bro.
1: The other nephew, Pompeius, has not been mentioned since he left the palace earlier. Right. But
0: but the nephews are the one pulling the other nephew down.
1: At this point, the nephews of Justinian, Boreades and Justus, are taking Hypatius and Pompeius, nephews of Anastasius...
0: That's right. To be
1: handed over to the emperor.
0: That's right. Got it. Got it.
1: And there perished among the populace on that day more than 30,000. Holy sh! To be fair, ancient sources do exaggerate sometimes, so we can't be sure that's correct, but I'm sure it was a lot. That's still a big number. But the emperor commanded the two prisoners to be kept in severe confinement. Then, while Pompeius was weeping and uttering pitiable words, for the man was wholly inexperienced in such misfortunes, Hypatius reproached him at length.
0: I don't really pity this guy. I know I probably should, but like...
1: He didn't really do anything.
0: (laughs) I guess he was kind of forced up to it, huh? Yeah. No one's going to believe that. I don't believe that.
1: Pompeius wasn't even the guy they decided was the new emperor. He's like the new emperor's brother or something. He's just kind yeah. of there. And they neither of them wanted to be involved. Oh my gosh.
0: This is a mess. All right.
1: Hypatius reproached him at length and said that those who were about to die unjustly should not lament. For in the beginning, they had been forced by the people against their will, and afterwards they had come to the Hippodrome with no thought of harming the emperor. And the soldiers killed both of them on the following day and threw their bodies into the sea. The emperor confiscated all their property for the public treasury, and also that of all the other members of the senate who had sided with them. Later, however, he restored to the children of Hypatius and Pompeius and to all others, the titles which they had formerly held, and as much of their property as he had not happened to bestow upon his friends.
0: (laughs) Not having to bestow on other people. You
1: you can have your wealth back, you know, what's left. I gave some of it away. I spent some. Wow. This was the end of the insurrection in Byzantium.
0: That's a lot.
1: Future Mac here. We are now switching over to the secret history. And what past Mac fails to make clear at the beginning of this changeover, because we were distracted by trying to figure out how much time we had left to record stuff, is that this isn't the same events being described in a different way? This is kind of a prologue to what we just read. So, what we're about to hear is stuff that happened when Justinus, Justinian's uncle, was still emperor, and Justinian was supposedly running things behind the scenes, and how that contributed to the riots that we just heard about. Uh... Now, the populace from of old has been divided into two factions, etc. Justinian is on the blue side.
0: Oh. Oh, okay. Yeah. That that gives us a lot more immediately.
1: Yeah, to read directly. And he, Justinian, now adopted one of them, namely the Veneti, or Blues, of whom, as it happened, he had previously been an enthusiastic supporter, and thus succeeded in throwing everything into confusion and disorder. And thereby, he brought the Roman state to its knees.
0: That's amazing. Can you imagine if, like, the president of the United States is like, I'm a Steelers fan, and immediately it's, like, riots. Yeah. <laughs> wow. To okay. be fair, I
1: do think a lot of presidents have expressed their opinions on sports, but usually it does not have a political consequence.
0: Yeah, not not usually that significant Anyway.
1: Anyway. But not all the Blues saw fit to follow the will of this man, but only those who chanced to be militant. And yet, even these, as the evil developed, seemed to be the most temperate men in the world, for their sins fell short of their license to commit them. So basically, Justinian has given, is trying to give the Blues, like, free reign to be his, like, his lackeys? Like, his own, like, little gang, where he can go, like, all right, I can't send the palace guards on this, but, like,
0: if you guys wanna.
1: want to go beat people up. Here's some people. And if you want to like burn down some stuff, here's some stuff. And if you want to go a little outside those lines, look, I like you guys. It's fine.
0: That's dangerous.
1: And Procopius is noting like they could have done way
0: worse. Whatever. Yeah.
1: Than what they actually did.
0: Wow. Wow. That changes
1: everything. Right.
0: Procopius, man, how you been holding out on us?
1: And of course, the militant group of the Greens did not on their part remain quiet, but they too were constantly busy with crimes as far as came within their power, although they were being punished continually, one at a time.
0: because they're not just Indian's little buddies.
1: Yet this very fact, the fact that they were being punished, always led them on to deeds of much greater daring. For men, when they are unjustly treated, are wont to become desperate. So at this time, while he kept fanning the flames and manifestly stirring up the blues, the whole Roman Empire was agitated from top to bottom as if an earthquake or a deluge had fallen upon it, or as if each and every city had been captured by the enemy.
0: You know, I kind of get why now.
1: For everything was thrown into confusion in every part, and nothing thereafter remained fixed, but both the laws and the orderly form of the government were completely overturned by the confusion that ensued. And... We're going to get some interesting details here that are not relevant, but are interesting. And so I've decided to read them.
0: I like that. I'm here for that.
1: In the first place, the mode of dressing the hair was changed to a rather novel style by the factions, for they did not cut it at all as the other Romans did. The factions have their own, like, look to signify that you're part of them, and we're about to hear what that is.
0: This is amazing because, like, this is a video game designer's dream because, like, all the dudes, like, all the lackeys actually have their own hairstyle and outfit and look. Like, you can identify these different groups and gangs. Yeah,
1: I assume they're also wearing blue.
0: Yeah, uh, presumably. That's amazing. Okay.
1: But anyway, the factions, uh, did not cut their hair like the other Romans did, for they did not touch the mustache or the beard at all, but they wished always to have the hair of these grow out very long, as the Persians do. But the hair of their heads, they cut off in front, back to the temples, leaving the part behind to hang down a very great length in a senseless fashion, just as the Masagate do.
0: So is this a, a mullet or an undercut?
1: This is a mullet.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Probably. It's not really clear just how short they're cutting it in the front. It could be that they're fully shaving the front, which I'm pretty sure would make it different from a mullet but that would also be a higher-maintenance hairstyle. So I'm guessing mullet. But if you know different, please tell us. Indeed, for this reason, they used to call this the Hunnic fashion. They didn't call it a mullet then. It was the hair that the Huns had, apparently.
0: It's a mullet. They're wearing mullets?
1: They're, They're mulleted.
0: Bro! All right. Okay, I'm learning so much. This is peak... Football hooligan behavior and wear and look. Fashion never changes.
1: In the second place, as to fashions in dress, they all insisted on being well-clad in fine garments, clothing themselves in raiment too pretentious for their individual rank. Oh my gosh, they're wearing Gucci. For they were enabled to acquire such clothing from stolen funds.
0: Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh.
1: So I'm going to I'm going to summarize this long description of the clothing specifically. But the important part is they've got these special tunics where that which are very kind of tight around the wrist, but very loose everywhere else. So when they're like waving their arms around in the stadium oh. and cheering people on, it's, it's all flapping around like you wings. You can
0: see them. Yeah. They're wearing they're literally wearing jerseys. Yeah, kind of.
1: Clarification for anyone confused by that comparison, I believe Zoe is imagining a hockey jersey. Also, their cloaks and their drawers, and especially their shoes, as regards both name and fashion, were classified as Hunnic. Yeah.
0: They're
1: They're borrowing from a specific, like, culture. Yeah. Wow. Probably as a deliberate countercultural move, because of course, like, a couple hundred years ago... The Huns were the big enemy of the Romans.
0: Yeah, 100%. This is all countercultural. Yeah. Wow.
1: Now, at first, practically all of them carried weapons openly at night, but in the daytime, they concealed small two-edged swords along the thigh under their mantle, and they gathered in groups as soon as it became dark, and would waylay men of the better classes, both in the marketplace at large and in the alleys.
0: That's fairly expected.
1: Yeah robbing their victims of their clothing and their girdles and gold brooches and whatever besides they might have in their hands. Of course. And some they saw fit to kill as well as rob, to keep them from carrying word to anyone of what had befallen them. Now these performances outraged everyone, and particularly the partisans of the blue faction who were not militant. That is, the blue fans who are not getting into the, like, the gang warfare aspect.
0: Right. They're like, can I just please enjoy my cherry tear racing? Yeah. You're giving us a bad name.
1: For not even they remained immune. Presumably, like, green fans are still attacking them. They're like, We're, we we don't want to do that part. Please stop it, yeah. The result of this was that thereafter most men used girdles and brooches of bronze and mantles much inferior to their station in order that they might not be destroyed by their love of beautiful things. And even before the sun had set, they would withdraw into their houses and remain out of sight. Makes sense. So I feel like this is probably something he didn't, He's talking about this here and not elsewhere because he wants to make the point that Justinian is very much not keeping the streets safe which is important right. for the yeah. political points he's trying to make. So I do think Procopius is kind of a law and order guy.
0: Oh yeah, he's he seems to be.
1: Such were the fortunes of the Blues and of the partisans of the opposing side some swung over to their faction through an eagerness to have a hand in committing offences without incurring punishment. Yeah while others took to flight and were lost to sight in other lands. Many also who were caught there in the city were destroyed by their opponents or were put to death as a punishment by the government. Many young men also flocked to this association, men who had previously never taken an interest in these affairs, but were now drawn to it by the lure of power and the opportunity for wanton insolence. This makes sense. Many too won them, the Blues, over by bribes, and then pointed out their own personal enemies,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: these they would destroy immediately.
0: This is the perfect setting for a campaign.
1: Exactly, right?
0: Wow, yeah. Especially if you had characters who were on, like, opposite sides. Ugh. Okay, anyway, anyway. Yeah, That's for later.
1: Attributing to them the name of Greaves, though they were in fact altogether unknown to them. Right. So, like, someone could just slip a blue a 50 and go, like, can you kill that guy for me? And like, yes, I can kill that guy. He's definitely a green. Yeah, that is yeah. why he we're killing He looks like him. one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And these things took place no longer in darkness or concealment, but at all hours of the day and in every part of the city, the crimes being committed, it might well be, before the eyes of the most notable men.
0: Wow. That's awful.
1: Skipping some. It's just going on in this vein for a while. For sure. And many moneylenders were forced through sheer compulsion to restore to their debtors their contracts without having received back any part of their loan.
0: They get threatened. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think this is another, like, Procopius' being a law and order guy where he's like, people were forced to forgive their debts. Woo! Yep. And many persons, not at all willingly, set their slaves free.
0: Oh no! (laughs) Obligatory reminder that this is not American chattel slavery. This was slavery regardless of race. This could be slavery due to debts, due to being inborn into slavery. Like there's a lot of different ways one could be a slave and a very different understanding of what that meant. Mm -hmm. This obviously does not excuse slavery by any means, but it is a very different concept than most modern people are familiar with, which is why I bring it up.
1: Yeah. Slavery is gonna be pretty rough, regardless of what context you're in, and the Roman Empire was kind of built on the back of slavery, and that's inexcusable in many ways. Yep. But it is a different system. If you're picturing American-style chattel slavery, it's, it's different. Still bad, different system. Different system. And they say that certain women were forced by their own slaves to many acts that were sore against their will.
0: That's Procopius being Procopius again.
1: Yep. And already, the sons of men of high station, having mingled with these lawless youths, were compelling their fathers to do much against their will, and in particular to deliver over their money to them. (laughs) So I'm about to drop a word that means different things in, like, older texts than it means in modern texts. I'm about 90% sure this is the modern meaning in this case. Okay. Okay. And many unwilling boys were compelled to enter into unholy intercourse with the factionists, with the full knowledge of their fathers.
0: Yeah, that sounds like the modern
1: usage. Yep. Yep. Skipping, like, another page there, because it's sure. more of the same. And Justinian offended not alone in that he refused absolutely to champion the cause of the wronged, but also because he did not object at all to making himself the avowed protector of the factionists. For he kept issuing great sums of money to these youths, and retained many of them about his own person. And some of them he even saw fit to summon to the magistracies and to other stations of honor.
0: This sounds like stuff that definitely happened, but
1: nobody can prove. But the Emperor Justinus paid not the slightest heed to what was passing, for he in fact had no power of perception at all, though he was an eyewitness at all times of what was being done in the Hippodromes. was just out of it. For he was extraordinarily simple-minded, and exceedingly like a stupid donkey and oh, wow. follow the man who pulls the rein his ears waving steadily the while
0: Procopius man all right you really don't need to go that far
1: yeah we're going to come back at various points in this narrative i think to the greens and the blues and the events of the of the nika riots that we read but i thought it was important to like here are the nika riots here's what yes. the greens and the blues are yep and then here's the like Extra context that Procopius provides of how all of this actually traces back to what Justinian was doing before he was emperor. 100%. Because
0: this is something that is underpinning everything Yeah, for Justinian. Clearly, like, he's got a massive problem with this. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. Okay.
1: So, segments.
0: Yeah. What say you?
1: Again, I think we have an obvious winner.
0: Loyalty is a good burial shroud.
1: Exactly, yes.
0: Yep, yep, 100%. But also, all of Theodora's little speech there, mm-hmm. love it, love it.
1: Also, I want to point out, that is now two Procopius episodes in a row where the dialogue section was, okay, obviously it was that thing Theodora said. There's no she's argument. She's
0: so badass. <laughs> like, she's horrible, but she's a badass, and she has good lines, good writing. She's the villain you love to hate.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, D&D. So, obviously, I think that this is a whole, like, setting for a campaign yeah. or a book or something, is the sports riot that crowns its own emperor. Yeah. That is absolutely a plot you can just take and use. And then if Wholesale. someone is like, excuse me, why are the Orioles deciding who the king is? <laughs> You're like, well, it happened. Mm-hmm, it happened yeah. once. There's historical backing.
0: Yeah, and to that, even if you don't want to use that as a plot, I think it's such a good setting that you have even a gang. It doesn't have to be the sports team, but a gang that is sort of either backed by the king or the king's advisor or something like that, where then people in the street are just like, mm, how about that guy? Like my, my enemy over there. And the way you can do this as a game master or a game designer is slowly reveal and unravel this plot. So maybe this isn't your entire campaign, but maybe, you know, like, you're in Act 3, you end up in this city, and somebody, you know, comes to the player and is like, hey, I've been targeted. Or, on the other hand, you could have an individual approach the players mistaking them for a bunch of greens or a bunch of blues, and either they're attacked or either they're given a contract to go and and do this and and kill somebody or steal from somebody or whatever and they slowly get into this giant mess of oh yeah sure we'll do that or oh yeah we'll save you or no 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 that's not who we are or maybe yeah sure that's who we are and then slowly it's like oh wait you guys are a sports team though oh wait you guys are backed by the the emperor's advisor. What's going on here? And then slowly, we're gonna crown a king. And de- there's so much building that you can do here, and in- increasing the tension mm-hmm. that I just love. That is so organic.
1: Yeah, and I feel like there's a lot of like different directions for the players to go there. Like I, I feel like at least some parties are gonna be like, okay, so there, this this gang, it mm-hmm. exists. Mm-hmm. They're gaining a lot of power. They're backed by the emperor. They have like these political ambitions. Maybe we should get on board.
0: Yeah, maybe we should maybe we should be part of that, right? I like it. There's there's a lot you can do there.
1: Yeah. I
0: like the idea that this could be a starting location for a party. Maybe one starts as a charioteer, maybe one is like the the nephew of the old emperor and you know th- those are their arcs that they can either fulfill or tear down or whatever, or you have two players and and one grew up in a greens family and one grew up in a blues family, and then they have to work that out with each other over the course of the campaign. There's so much there. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like I say this, and some people might think, well, oh, aren't you dictating the story to to these players? You know, that sounds like you're railroading them. And to me, I would argue, no, because you're giving them a setting, and you're giving them a set of circumstances that they should agree to. Like, hey, do you want to be, you know, a blues fan and your family grew up and is really dedicated to that? Hey, do you want to be the old emperor's nephew and now you're, you've watched this new emperor take over and, did, like, you know, get them on board with that. But then once you're there, let them do whatever they want with it. You're not necessarily railroading them, but you have other events that are going to be set in motion or that they can opt in to set in motion and start that snowball. And whether or not, you know, they end up taking the crown, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Or whether or not they decide to reconcile with the other player who is a Greens or Blues fan, you know, that's all up to them and you as as a, as a a DM are helping them figure out that path. But you're giving them a circumstance with a bunch of set pieces surrounding that. So just as a note, a game design note to GMs out there, don't be afraid to set up these circumstances because your players will love to run into those. They will take those and run. If you see these little, I think they were once referred to as knives,
1: I've heard that, yeah. Yeah, so... I don't know who said that, but I've heard I,
0: I don't remember. We'll have to find it. But it's something that... Something valuable, a value to the character that you can turn into a knife and twist at a certain point. And so all of those are, are great examples, I think, of how you could do that in this sort of a setting.
1: Yeah. It is my firm belief that a good GM plans situations and circumstances and scenarios not stories. Not outcomes.
0: Not outcomes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Never yeah. the outcome. You're not planning a story. You're you're getting a bunch of characters and you're putting them in a situation, mm-hmm. and then you just see what happens. Yep. If you yep. start talking storylines, that that's when it's a problem. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: For me, it's I've, this is something I've only seen in like recent years. But whenever I hear a GM talking about story beats, I I see it as a red flag. I'm like, Ooh. if you already know what the story is, why am I here?
0: Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't like that. Like, to me, you are telling a story, you're telling a story together with people. And I think it's important to touch base with your players and agree like, okay, are we doing a fundamentally like good heroic campaign? Are we playing an yeah. evil campaign? Are we doing an intrigue campaign? Like, how how are we playing this game? That's your overall theme. That's the story. It's a story of heroism. Right. But it's not the story of defeating the evil king. Like, maybe the king is evil. Maybe that's not where they go. Maybe that is where they go. There are different ways to overcome evil. So you can have those little set pieces. And so like maybe all roads lead to the king. Sure. To me, that's fine. You're not railroading so long as they have that open world to explore. And then they're like, Oh, maybe we should check out the king, you know. But if if you're trying to find story beats and tempo, I think the way that I think about a story beat is you're kind of Lining things up. This needs to happen, then this needs to happen, then that needs to happen. That's not how d d works. But you can no. use the overall function of a story. Your, your characters are going to level up. Your players are going to level up. And talk with your group about what kind of arc their character should have. I like doing that because that helps set kind of an expectation for the player. So, oh, I really want to do a paladin, but I want to do like a paladin who breaks their oath and and then comes back to it maybe. Or maybe they don't, but I really want to have a broken oath paladin, right? And you're like, okay, cool. I know that that's a set piece they really want. Oh, I really want to have a rogue who learns about found family and finds family with the group or whatever,
1: right? Okay,
0: cool. That kind of sets that expectation. You want to have set pieces that lead to that, but you're not doing a
1: story beat. I'm old-fashioned enough that I, I'm equally suspicious of character arcs.
0: That's fair. <laughs> I watched you grimace as I said it.
1: <laughs> I feel like what makes it a game rather than a collaborative writing exercise is that the story is emergent. You don't plan That's any true. part That's of it true ahead too. of time. Yeah. It comes out of these situations and the characters you put together. And if you start saying, okay, eventually this has to happen. hmm Then you're you're veering towards okay we're writing a story together which fine that's a great thing to do it's not really a game anymore it's a different activity
0: that's true too to me I think there's you can kind of go one way or go the other way you don't want to like swing at your player with something crazy that's going to ruin the game for them and so if they come to you and they're really like hey I really want to do this thing all right cool you know maybe you really want to have that arc I can make that happen because you don't want to ruin their fun right. But also if a player's like, yeah, I have no idea what's going to happen to my paladin and I'm just going to roll with it. Then yeah, 100%. Cool. Maybe they break their oath. Maybe they don't. Maybe they, you know, turn into a righteous asshole. Who knows? But yeah, I think so. I think that in particular depends on on
1: your player. But
0: set pieces, yes. Situations, yes. Outcomes,
1: no. Right. And like, there will be a story like after you finish the game and look back on it. There's a story there. There's always a story there. A story happened. You don't have to break out the script writing guides or whatever.
0: No, you don't. No, you don't. And not to go too meta with this, but this is something that I believe and I'm kind of curious about digging more into in terms of narratology. But to me, stories are so fundamentally human that we can't help but tell stories. And so I think that's what you're really getting at, Mac, is you don't need to plan an arc. You don't need to plan story beats because you know, you're gonna put the players in a situation and they will craft a story out of that without even doing it consciously because that's just how humans are wired.
1: Yeah. To go back to the sports analogy that we mm-hmm. that we were we were looking at before, if you listen to sports commentators, they're always telling like stories of like a great comeback or a mm-hmm. or a redemption mm-hmm. arc or like that's they use that language.
0: Yep. And marketing marketing is always storytelling. Advertising is just storytelling.
1: If there is a series of events, someone is going to frame them as a story. Yep. And you don't need to put a lot of effort in ahead of time to make your game into a story. Your game will be a story, even if it is the most basic dungeon crawl with no character development. A story still happens. There is a series of events and a story arises from them.
0: Yep. 100%. 100%. All right. What else? What else can we use?
1: I like the bits about the fashions that the greens and the blues Mm -hmm. wear
0: yes i want some fantasy mullets people
1: yes i both like that (laughs) their signature fashion is beards and mullets and big flowy shirts i think that's great yeah but i also like the fact that procopius makes the point that they call these hunnic fashions because Mm -hmm. they're like kind of imitating a historical enemy of of rome of rome yeah like they're They're appropriating this imagery in this fashion in order Mm -hmm. to express a countercultural like Mm -hmm. drive.
0: Yeah. That's a really good world building tip is, you know, what is the culture? What is the counterculture? And I think that's also something that naturally arises as you play because people love people love being countercultural characters. Yeah. But yeah, like when you're when you're setting up a world, when you're setting up those scenarios, what is the culture? What is the counterculture? Really, really great way to come up with hooks.
1: Yeah. What is your world's equivalent of the Hunnic fashion or the yeah. Che Guevara t-shirt? <laughs>
0: yep. I desperately would love to have some kind of a scene with that Theodora speech. I don't know how it would quite fit. But that or the scene with, with Belisarius kind of charging into the, the Hippodrome. Like that scene, there's so many good moments that are just powerful scenes that you can take and use as inspiration you know whether it's a battle in a hippodrome or whether it's a meeting in a novel with like your i don't know it doesn't even have to be a villain character it could just be it could be your heroic character who says something like theodora you know with this with this uh, royalty is a good burial shroud maybe it's i don't know like Courage is a good burial shroud, I feel like, in terms of I'm going to go into this situation and I would rather die than than be a coward and run from it. There's really powerful scenes.
1: I want a gate named the Snail because it has a spiral ramp.
0: I love that. I love that. The Snail Gate. Yeah. Yeah. Place names are not hard to do. Pick an architectural thing. The Circle Gate. The Snail Gate. The Waterfall Gate. There you go. The North Gate. You pick a direction. Like it's
1: the gate of death, apparently. Apparently,
0: 10 out of 10. Yeah, I think that's what I what I had.
1: Yeah, that's all I've got.
0: It's a hefty setting. It's a hefty campaign idea that does a lot of the hefty lifting for you. How many ages hence shall this, our lofty scene, be acted over?
1: In Modern culture. Under- About the clothing of the factionists, I have realized something. Go. These people, the way they're described. Mm-hmm. Their whole thing is they watch vehicles go around a track. They have mullets and beards, and they wear no, And they wear no. the aesthetic of a historical enemy of the government. They're NASCAR fans.
0: Oh my God. They're NASCAR
1: fans with Confederate flags.
0: You've lived in Indiana for too long. You're so right. <laughs> You're so right. That's awful. Oh my gosh. And I really like that because I feel like a lot of NASCAR drivers don't identify with the fans at all. I have all. heard
1: that. that. I have heard that a couple, like, well-known NASCAR drivers have come out as saying, like, stop with the fucking Confederate stuff.
0: Oh, wow. I don't like how poignant that is. Yeah. Unexpected kind of, parallel. Kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good note, though. What else? What else? Modern. I mean, we still have the sports. We yeah, still football have, hooliganism. You know, yeah. I I feel like insurrections themselves, like a lot of them kind of end up spiraling bigger than you think they do. And I think that our own, you know, not to say the dreaded words, but like January 6th, I think is a good example of that, where it kind of started off with people saying really inflammatory things online, and then people starting to gather and then, It gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then all of a sudden people are dead in the capital.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there are some other parallels there. There were people demanding the death of government officials. Yeah. The executive decided to sequester himself in his home rather than getting involved.
0: That's immediately what I thought of. I was like, do I say that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking it too, and also decided not to say it at the time.
0: Yeah. But yeah, it's pretty, it's kind of freaky how poignant that is in, in a lot of ways. But I mean, and I feel like that's not just something that we see or have seen with January 6th, but I feel like it's, it's happened over and over and over again throughout history. Like, I'm kind of reminded of there was two Chinese generals, I think, who were going to show up late to battle, and the punishment for that would have been death. And so they took their armies and they're like, well, if we are insurrectionists, then the punishment for that is death. So why don't we just take our chances and overthrow the dynasty? And they did. And it started off with them being late. It started off from something very, you know, presumably innocuous.
1: Are you Googling this? I am not. I'm, although. I'll have to find it. Good Lord. That does sound familiar. Yeah. Let me look it up. Chen Sheng and Wu Guang Uprising. I'm probably saying that wrong.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that one always gets me. I'm like,
1: anyway, other echoes. I can't think of any specific ones, but I do think it's worth noting how often we keep looking at this and going like, okay, this—the events that are being described, happening almost fifteen hundred years ago and over five thousand miles away from where we are, really sound familiar.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's crazy, and it's—it's it's one of the reasons why I really enjoy studying. I mean, the medieval period in general, but also like ancient history. And, you know, once you get into modern history, I think you start losing yourself in the details. But when you look at this stuff, you you kind of realize like humans have always been humans. And this stuff keeps happening and we never learn. And, you know, so on and so forth. And it just reminds you that for all of our progression, we haven't really progressed that far.
1: Yeah. Yeah, again, people always equate technological progress and social progress and assume Ugh. that both are just going forward in lockstep forever. Mm-hmm. But like Nope. They're not actually related at all. And yeah. they don't sync up.
0: No, they don't. It's the Dungeon Masters Dictionary. Any terminology? Colored sports teams. Yeah. Easy. You're done. That's it. That's all you needed. Again, world building is easy. <laughs>
1: And they're the colors of the four seasons. Like, I feel like that is if someone had to plan out four teams, that would be super easy. Yeah, that would be yeah. maybe not the first. I think they might go four elements first, but mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. you probably get a pretty similar set of colors from those also. Right. Yeah. But like that would be one of the one of the obvious options. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be that complicated. Sometimes it's just the blues and the greens,
0: the blues and the greens. I like caster as t- some terminology. If you're looking for cool like elected official names, I would highly recommend looking at the lists upon lists of official positions in the Roman government. Mm-hmm. You will always find something.
1: If you want some really funny ones, look at the ones in the late Byzantine Empire, though.
0: Oh, they're hilarious. They're very strange.
1: There was a period where they would just add prefixes on because they're like, okay, this guy is the... I don't know, the boss, not a real title for, in Byzantine Empire design, but we want this other guy to have a better position, and there's not one open, so mm-hmm. we're just going to call him the super boss, yep. and then this guy is the hyper super boss, mm-hmm. and this guy is the super hyper ultra boss. Like, it just kept going.
0: They just kept making it weirder and weirder. Like, it was wild.
1: There's a reason we use Byzantine uh, as an adjective the way we do.
0: Mm-hmm. Better than medieval. Anyway.
1: Is a word I'm trying to remember that I use, the monumental gate.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Ah, there it is. The Propylia. Propylia. It's spelled P-R-O-P-Y-L-A-E-A. And if that's not how you pronounce it, then blame Wikipedia, because oh. I'm, I'm, I'm reading off of their IPA when I say that.
0: The prototypical Greek example is the entrance to the Acropolis of Athens. So it's like the, the really big colonnade, big gate.
1: Thing. We also got like. the word colonnade in here, which is also a good word.
0: Colonnade it's is a, a row
1: of columns supporting something. Stuff. It, yeah, it, it can be whatever. There, there has to be a thing on top, and there has to be a row of columns, and it's a colonnade. It can, it can just be like a roof.
0: Street smart. So what do we learn from this text? Don't attend sports events, you will be radicalized.
1: Yes. <laughs> Don't encourage football hooligans. They're mm-hmm, bad enough mm-hmm. as they are. Grease your poles. Gre- grease your... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not touching that.
0: You shouldn't. All right. What else do we learn?
1: Being acclaimed emperor by the crowd is a high mortality proposition. You should avoid it.
0: Yeah, for St. Nick, too, come to think of it. How do you mean? Well, wasn't he? wasn't he chosen? He
1: was, yes. Yeah,
0: he was just declared, declared bishop.
1: In a very suspicious way. Yeah. But, like, he survived. He made it through. He was fine.
0: Yeah. Just saying, if if somebody declares you into a position of power, it's probably not a good thing. Yeah. I think we can learn a lot from these Praetorian guards.
1: What can we learn from them? I feel like
0: follow your contract and listen to the paycheck is kind of... Oh, yeah. <laughs> in our In our day and age... <laughs>
1: If there's an insurrection happening, uh, do consider where your paycheck is going to come from next. Yeah. Like, unless you have strong feelings about one side or another, it's probably the most sensible option to just stay out of it until you yeah. know who's going to win. Yeah. Yikes. That may not be the ethical option, but you should remember that it's an option. True. True. I think that's what I've got. Yeah. Don't mess right with
0: Theodora, man. That's the only other one. Don't mess with
1: Theodora. Yes. Best moment. I'm trying to think of like a discreet event.
0: Well, for me, Theodora has her little speech and that's great. But the moment that really stands out to me is Belisarius charging in there and the nephews like grabbing the other nephew, like the two unrelated mm-hmm. nephews and like yanking him off of the throne. Is that's very so dramatic. poignant. It's very yeah.
1: cinematic.
0: I like that. We don't usually get those kind of cinematic moments in like medieval history texts. So that one, that one really stood out to me.
1: I would say that my favorite moment of all of this is Belisarius marching up with his like veterans to a group of guards and them just refusing to listen to him. Like not even acknowledging that he's there. Nope.
0: Nope.
1: I see nothing. I hear nothing.
0: (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. That one's good. That one's really good. Like, how do you even get away with that? I don't know how they got away with that. But that's great.
1: You know, you'd think that would be the risk of going like, I'm staying out of this insurrection. Is that Eventually, the winning side is going to be like, hey, why didn't you support us? Why
0: didn't you do anything? I think they're too culturally used to it at this point.
1: That is also possibly true, yeah. Man. Then again, I guess if we had like a domestic, like if we had a major insurrection here in the US and the military decided not to get involved, I think people would be okay with that. They'd be like, you know, we d- that's probably for the best. We don't want tanks yeah. rolling down the highway.
0: Yeah, true.
1: Like, you'd, I feel like people would kind of respect that and just go like, fine.
0: Yeah, or maybe like if two states kind of went at it with each other, like the rest of the states would be like, oh, that's not our problem. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, man. That's weird.
1: It's weird to think about. I was thinking about like, what would we do if, if we had an insurrection and the soldiers stayed out of it? And would be like, I think we'd be okay with that, actually. Because whatever side the military joins is going to win. So there's like right. a ethical question there.
0: Yeah, there is. Interesting. Hmm. <audio cuts> the court. Did one of us already take Bel- Belisarius? I don't think we did because I kind of called him a cuck earlier. You did,
1: yes. No, we not, <laughs> not going to be Belisarius.
0: But I kind of like him. <laughs> he tries so hard. He's so lame. <laughs> <laughs> He's effective, but he's also, like, really lame. And did you... I picked Procopius himself. Oh. (laughs) I have bad taste in my court, apparently. Did anyone pick The... I don't know.
1: No one's taken Theodora yet, I don't think.
0: I don't know if we're ready to take Theodora. I don't think we're that desperate. All right, you know who I'm going to take? I'm going to take Belisarius because he's easily manipulated by the person who controls him. And I will control him.
1: (laughs) That is a good point.
0: Like he didn't he didn't turn on Justinian. That's the biggest thing to me. Like he had the opportunity here. Yeah. And the nephews, like, weren't that effective. Like they were killed.
1: Yeah, the only person who I feel is like There was also Mundus. Yeah, no, I'm I'm considering him actually. I was gonna say, like, the only person I who I feel is like on top of things and making the right decisions is Hypatia's wife mary who shows up in like, yeah. one paragraph is like this is such a bad idea don't do this don't You're do this. die yeah and like she was right
0: i like her but i like her
1: she, she didn't get anything done like she did not in fact stop anyone from, right from dying but you
0: know she's really
1: she's just she's the only person who came in there said what was going to happen correctly mm-hmm. and then was immediately pushed back out of the story
0: she's the only sympathetic character
1: like, everyone else is either, like, actively screwing things up or just doing their job.
0: Yeah, I feel like Procopius is like a Game of Thrones scenario where you don't really pick the person because you like them. Yeah. You pick them because they're effective.
1: Yeah, and to that extent, I think it's time for me to bite the bullet and pick Theodora.
0: I was gonna say, yep. I won't, I won't begrudge you that one. All right, you got, the, you got the woman herself. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Uh... 18. You first.
0: This one's wild. I like that we get two different accounts, and I like how immediately once you get into the second account, boom, immediately we get the actual opinion here.
1: I am 100% sure that if Procopius had been able to combine them like he wanted, that bit I write from The Secret History would have been put right before the account of the Nika riots in the war. Yes. To go like, yep. okay, here's the context you need. Yep. Is that this is all Justinian's fault
0: yep I'm giving this an eight point five because I like I wish it were together, but I kind of like the reveal. I'm not giving it a nine because there are a lot of people to keep track of, yeah. and like it's not very helpful that it's like the nephew and the other nephew and I'm like who which are the are they related? No, okay, so that downgraded, but otherwise, it's both hilarious from a modern angle, deeply relatable from a modern angle and also entertaining the entire time, yeah. So, 8.5.
1: I am going to meet you there. I feel like the thing that holds it back from being a 9 is that, again, there's too many people to keep track of easily, Mm -hmm. which I had an easier time with that, but that's because I had it in print in front of me. Fair. So, I I assume that your experience is going to be closer to the listener's experience. But mostly, I feel like those speeches could have been cut short.
0: Yeah, yeah. They were a little bit lengthy.
1: Welcome. To the leech's corner.
0: Diamond is hot. Yeah, Strong is. start, Hildegard. <laughs> it is born from mountains of southern shores, which are like glue and glassy as crystal.
1: I'm sorry, they're like glue?
0: I think it's like from a color perspective. Oh. That's my guess. Like, it's like like medieval glue. Which, modern glue and medieval glue seems very different to me. So I'm guessing it's like... Like medieval glue, whatever it looked like.
1: Yeah, I feel like that's something you put into a campaign. The great mountain of glue. The sticky hills of the south.
0: Yeah, next to the horse farm. Yeah. <laughs> like a heart of great strength, a lump arises from the viscous matter. Oh no, she's talking about the
1: texture. It is like glue. <laughs>
0: Ew! So it's like a little, like a sludge, and then it, it's like, I guess it's like a pearl. It's like a, a, a lump is grown from the viscous matter. This doesn't make the diamond a very appealing stone. Straight from Mount Viscous. Eww. Alright. It is so strong and hard that before it becomes large, it splits from the mountain's viscous matter and falls into water in the shape and size of a chrysolite, leaving the viscous area weaker than it was before. Then, when an inundation of rivers surges up, it carries the stone to other lands. So, I guess... I mean, it's sort of... kind of how volcanoes like, harden and then turn into, like, obsidian and stuff, you know?
1: I also like that we've returned back to a misconception of Hildegard's that we encountered months and months and months ago, which is that she thinks rivers flow from the ocean inwards.
0: Yeah, that is, that is the other weird part.
1: So, like, something falls into the sea and then finds its way into a river, and then the river floods and you find it on the bank. Like, that's not, that's backwards.
0: Okay, so technically she is kind of close here, because according to Wikipedia...
1: (laughs) According to Wikipedia, the southern mountains are extremely sticky.
0: Yes, well, okay. Under high pressure and temperature, carbon-containing fluids dissolved various minerals and replaced them with diamonds. Much more recently, they were carried to the surface in volcanic eruptions and deposited in igneous rocks. So, like...
1: She's kind of right. It is possible that someone tried to explain lava to her and she didn't understand.
0: That's kind of what I'm thinking.
1: Or that she's like Game of Telephoning, a a much older account.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking because we're, you know, we're talking about a lump arises from the viscous matter. Like it's carried up. It's carried Mm -hmm. up through volcanic stuff. So she's kind of right in a very medieval way. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway, let's get to the use of diamonds. Certain people are malicious, either by nature or because of the devil, and express nothing willingly. <laughs> when they speak, they have a harsh look, and at times go nearly out of their mind as if propelled by madness. Then they quickly return to themselves. These people should often, or indeed always, place a diamond where, where do you think it goes?
1: Does it go under their tongue?
0: It goes in their mouth, yeah. yeah. Always have a diamond in your mouth, apparently. It is of such virtue and of such great strength that it extinguishes the malice and evil in them. But one who is frenetic, a liar, or wrathful should always keep a diamond in his mouth. By its power, these evils are dispelled.
1: Right, so I feel like what she's trying to... I feel like this is just a very uncharitable description of, like, someone with a personality disorder.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah.
1: It's like, they are malicious and possibly of the devil, so you put diamonds in their mouth.
0: hmm And then, let's see, we've got... One who is unable to fast should place this stone in his mouth. It will diminish his hunger, enabling him to fast for a longer period. One who is vexed by palsy and or has, a—I hate this word, apoplexy. The disease which takes hold of the middle of the body so that it is unable to move, a pretty great description, should place a diamond in wine or water for a full day and drink it. The gift, the illness, will cease, even if it is so strong that his limbs threaten to break. And the apoplexy will diminish. Also, one with jaundice should put this stone in wine or water and drink it, and he will be cured. I don't think your jaundice is going to help with the wine.
1: I feel like we should make a chart of when and when not Hildegard uses "if God wills it" to figure out we which should. things you can cure if God doesn't. If like
0: God to doesn't do it. will it, yeah. In
1: what ways can you go against the will of God with rocks?
0: Yes, good question. All right, and then we have one more paragraph. And this one is cool because it is scientifically true, and I like that she includes it. Diamond is of such great hardness that no other hardness is able to
1: overcome it. Oh, yeah, I think she's right there.
0: Yeah, it scratches and bores through iron. Neither iron nor steel is able to cut into its hardness. It is so strong that it neither gives way nor breaks before cutting into steel. Because this stone withstands his power, the devil is hostile to diamond. And so, at night as well, during the day, the devil disdains it.
1: Interesting. Interesting. I like
0: that. I like that.
1: I didn't realize they... Thought of diamonds as a cutting tool that far back. Yeah, I also didn't realize that the devil hated diamonds. That's a new one.
0: Yeah. Maybe you're, I guess, you could be more protected if you wear a diamond, you know? Like, a crucifix is one thing, but a diamond crucifix, (laughs) you have the ultimate protection against demons, plus some cool bling.
1: I was going to (laughs) say, at the expense of looking incredibly tacky.
0: Yeah, you know, but, Like, unless
1: it's a very small one, which uh, at least will be more affordable. True.
0: So, but then again, the medievals Diamonds. liked
1: everything to be very. I know flashy, they had all the gaudy. shiny. So that's yeah. that's absolutely yeah. That that I'm sure in the in the medieval aesthetic, that's extremely fashionable.
0: Yeah, diamond covered crucifixes. So there you go, diamond. I like that. There's actually a lot more truth to this one that we normally see. Yeah. Compared to the others, like we have like it's the hardest stone. It'll go through iron and steel, and then we also have sort of like how it's created. In this weird telephony way. So that's really cool. I, li- I like that. Yeah. Cool. So diamonds have also always kind of been valuable in that extra special way, even if it's just because it's one of the hardest stones.
1: Yeah. That's interesting.
0: Yeah. I like it. Next is magnet. That's cool. I'm excited <laughs> for that one. <laughs>
1: what? <laughs> I mean, I assume she means lodestone, but that took me off guard for a second because I don't think of that as a type of rock.
0: A magnesian stone or magnet. All right. Yeah. That's exciting. I'm I'm excited for that one. Alright. But there you go. Yes. Well, with football season coming up and ongoing.
1: Make your insurrection plans now.
0: Yeah, or just get out now. Just be be prepared.
1: Find a, a new emperor to crown.
0: Yeah. Be be careful if you see anyone wearing a jersey on the street.
1: Yeah, that's a fair
0: fair assessment. Yeah. To you wear
1: know? mullets. Beware
0: mullets. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> Some things never change.
1: I mean, I, I know people with mullets who are fine. My sibling's partner has a mullet. He's
0: Well, I just mean like the fact that we've had mullets forever.
1: Yes, that is also true.
0: Some things never change. And the fashion the fashion statement that is the mullet is never ending. That is true. So there you go. Go forward with that fashion advice, listeners. And we'll see you next time.
1: See you next time. <laughs>
0: I didn't know we were going to talk about mullets. (laughs) Amazing. 10 out of 10. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. I feel like you should have saved that for Echoes in Modern Culture, but here we are. Oh yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll tag it in here too.
1: Yeah, I might move it.